We see Jesus, Hebrews 20.20 and almost 20.21. Increment 76, a question being posed here. If they shall enter into my rest, if they shall enter into my rest, from Hebrews 3.11. And that will be one of our central concerns today in the message, but there'll be other things too. We're going to go to Hebrews chapter 3. And verse 7, the section that we're involved with right now is especially 3, 7 through 11, but this starts a movement of a section of Hebrews that goes all the way through 4.13 and the couple of verses that honor the word of God. And Father, as we consider your word, we pray that you will speak it today through your servant, that it will come forth like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times, that you'll speak it to the elevating of the poor in spirit, the enriching of the poor, the elevating of the oppressed and the depressed in soul, the conveyance of healing grace, saving grace, justifying grace, Father, for your word through the Spirit, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, sanctifies the unholy, justifies the ungodly, enriches the poor in spirit, and lifts the oppressed and depressed of soul. All these things is what your word will do because we anticipate it in faith and in confidence in your unrelenting mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit is saying... Today, if you hear the voice of the Lord your shepherd, that's just a giving of the sense from our last message, don't harden your hearts, as in the embitterment that led to revolt during the day of testing in the desert, where your ancestors tested me, says God, put me to the proof, even as they were seeing my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked by this generation and said, they're always led astray in heart and they have not known my ways. One way to look at that is they have not cared for my ways. They have not cared to take my road. As I swore in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest. Now, in the English, that looks pretty like it's stuck up in the air there. But as we've shown, it means they will not enter my rest. The Holy Spirit is speaking in Hebrews 3.7. And because this is a theological exegesis of Hebrews, I want to take off on that just for a moment. Hebrews begins in the first two verses with God speaking. In Hebrews 3.7, the Holy Spirit urges the readers not to harden our hearts. Today, if we hear his voice, God speaking, his, evident, his voice there evidently being God's voice, as we have seen, today, if you're hearing his voice, because he is speaking. We have also considered that God the Father, specifically, who spoke with finality in a son in these last days, has also urged his apostles, and when you consider the apostles, you consider us in them, as we'll see. 
in the apostles, all of humanity, the Father says to hear his beloved Son. In Matthew 3.17, he says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. In 17.5, he says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Hear him. The Son, as he appears to John in Patmos, as the Son of Man in Revelation, urges the angels of the seven churches. Those are messengers of the seven churches. And by urging them, urges all the churches in Asia Minor at the time to be careful to heed what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And when the Spirit speaks, as Jesus said, he, the Spirit of truth, will take what is mine and declare it to you, John sixteen fourteen. Then he added, all that the Father has is mine. For this reason I told you that he, the Spirit, takes from what is mine and will announce it to you. You see there is a, a kind of mixture of the three persons of the triune God all speaking and all recommending the other, each recommending the other person that we listen to them. When the Son speaks, his words are spirit and they are life, which means they convey spirit, convey life in John 6.63. So Peter was certainly right a few verses down the road to say, where will we go? You have the words of eternal life, age-abiding life. From all of this, the scripture shows us that the uncreated, unlimited, and all-powerful being called God consists of three uncreated, unlimited, and all-powerful subjects who are persons in relation. I put that together as kind of one term, persons hyphen in hyphen relation. That's the triune God. They are one in an ineffable fellowship of unrestricted love and of a goodness, the very nature of which necessarily extends itself into all beings and all things. Truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, said John the Elder in 1 John 1.3. Truly our fellowship is with the Father and his Son. Thanks be to God. God is faithful, says 1 Corinthians 1.9, who has called us into fellowship with his Son. And when Paul spoke a benediction at the end of 2 Corinthians depending on what translation you read, 13.13 or 13.14. He said, May the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. So we have fellowship connected to the Father and the Son, and ours being with and in the Father and the Son. We have the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And it says again, 
May the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The God who subsists in three eternal subjects, that is, acting subjects or persons, wills that all be in fellowship with the Holy Spirit, which is to be in a loving fellowship of divine, human, and angelic persons. This fellowship is said to be festive and everlastingly celebratory. God's rest, which is the subject all the way through Hebrews 4.11, the rest of God, in which there's Gezerah Shavah, from Genesis 2-2, as well as Psalm 95, 7 through 11, L in the Septuagint 94, 7 through 11, God's rest is not just a Sabbath of inactivity. It's a Sabbath of celebration, praise, worship, great joy. And so that fellowship is festive and everlastingly celebratory. We are afforded a glimpse of it in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 to 24, where the PT says that we have come, not to Mount Zion, or not to Mount Sinai, rather, but we have come, quote, to Mount Zion, that is, the city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels in a festal gathering to the assembly of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, and by judge he means the justifier, as we see from the next phrase, God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the justified made complete. When we speak of the spirits justified, I think of Romans 5.18, which means all of humanity. And made complete, I think, of Romans 8.30, as many as he justified, those he glorified or completed in glory. He goes on to say, And you have come to the mediator of the new covenant, Jesus, and to the sprinkled blood. That's the blood that atones and speaks better things than that of Abel. All of this is Hebrews 12.22-24. To our surprise, these verses lead to an exhortation in which the PT says, take care that you don't reject the one who is speaking. That's Hebrews 12.25. See the connection between 3.11 and 12.25. And also all the way back to Hebrews 1.1 and 2. God speaking. In Hebrews 12.25, he does not specify which divine person is speaking. But we know that the speaker whose voice is about to shake the heavens as well as the earth is God's voice. Now, it almost doesn't matter which person of the triune God speaks. Because when one speaks, he speaks as God. And when another speaks, he speaks as God. Now, a small paragraph from John Henry Newman 
in his book, John Henry Newman. Now, I've said many times to our congregation that I've been profoundly influenced by Bernard J.F. Lonergan, who lived from 1904 to 1984, and his theology especially, especially books like Insight and in volume 17 that I'm going to quote now, and also Method in Theology, and many other of his writings. I've read thousands of pages of them. But Bernard Lonergan also had a mentor, and he speaks of him this way in volume 17 of the Lonergan collection. Lonergan himself wrote, quote, My fundamental mentor and guide has been John Henry Newman, that's N-E-W-M-A-N, John Henry Newman's Grammar of Ascent. That's the name of the book, a shortened name for it, Grammar of Ascent. He goes on to say, I read that in my third year of philosophy, at least the analytic parts, about five times, and found solutions for my problems. I was not at all satisfied with the philosophy that was being taught and found Newman's presentation to be something that fitted in well with the way I knew things. It was from that kernel, K-E-R-N-E-L, that I went on to different authors. Now, we all have mentors and starting points. I, too, was unsatisfied with much of the doctrine and theology that I had learned as a pastor-teacher. And so when I read Lonergan, I began to see a way to discover truth. I began to see a method that precedes the knowledge of truth so that we can pursue it on our own and under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Now, in that book called Grammar of Ascent, Newman wrote about the Trinitarian formula or the the famous formula of Athanasius. It's called the Athanasian Creed. Now stay with me because I know this seems to be out of bounds here, but all of this is going and being directed toward one subject, that being the ever-enduring, unrelenting mercy of God. In Grammar of Ascent, John Henry Newman wrote about the Trinitarian formula as found in the Athanasian Creed. He says, tres et unus in Latin, that's T-R-E-S, et, E-T, U-N-U-S in Latin, not merely unum, that means three and one, not just one. Hence that formula is the keynote, as it may be called, of the Athanasian Creed. By that creed, we testify to the unus increatus, that is the uncreated one, to the unus immensus, the unlimited one, the omnipotens deus and dominicus, which means, of course, the omnipotent God and Lord. But here's the part, as he closes off this quote, that really struck me. Yet each of the three is also by himself increatus, which means uncreated, immensus, which means unlimited, omnipotens, which means all-powerful. For each is that one God. Wrestle with that one. Each is that one God. Though each is not the other. 
he capitalizes each and one and each and other. Each, as is intimated by unus increatus, or one uncreated God, each is the one personal God of natural religion. In other words, people, and this is me now, people call him God, the one God. Monotheists call him God. He is the God of what we call natural religion, people who don't have any particular religion such as Judaism, Christianity, or Islam still have God consciousness. They call him God. We know God is Trinitarian or triune, and each of the persons of the triune Godhead is all of God. And this is what is we might call the mystery of the Trinity, and not a mystery that can't be known, but a mystery that is fascinating to be considered. But from there, I want to follow this out a little bit. The Athanasian Creed says of the persons of the one personal God that, again, each is that one God, though each is not the other. For this reason, we can say that the Son is God, S-O-N. In him, all of the fullness of divinity resides. Not some of it, not a third of it, all of it. We can say that the Father is God. In him, all the fullness of divinity resides. Not, th- not a third of it or part of it. Likewise, the Holy Spirit is equally God. In him, all the fullness of divinity resides. Not a part, not a third, all. But only of the Son that is, of Christ Jesus, can it be said that in him resides all the fullness of divinity bodily, as Colossians 2.9 says. When each of the persons of the one personal God speaks, then all of God speaks. We should not reject or harden our hearts to God when he speaks. Now, I also found another notable quote in Newman's essay. I have not read the whole thing yet. I started it five or six times. It's pretty difficult to get started in. But I did find a a notable quote in Newman's essay in which he addresses the connection. Now, please stay with me if you're listening to this or if you're reading the notes that go along with it and you're carefully listening, stay with me because all of these trains are going to go into the same station eventually in this message. Another quote in which he addresses the connection of Christianity with Judaism. We introduced that a little while ago, that Christianity and the writings of the New Testament are not written to demean, degrade, or in any other way debunk or defund the significance of Judaism. And so he says... He addresses the connection of Christianity with Judaism, which, of course, the PT in Hebrews also does. Newman wrote the following. If Christianity is connected with Judaism as closely as I have been supposing, and so Cardinal Newman did way back in 1870 see a close connection of Judaism with Christianity. If Christianity is connected with Judaism, as closely as I have been supposing, then there have been, by means of the two, 
direct communication between man and his maker from time immemorial down to this day. A great prerogative such that is nowhere else even claimed. No other religion but these two profess to be the organ, listen carefully to this, no other religion but these two profess to be the organ of a formal revelation, certainly not of a revelation which is directed to the benefit of the whole human race. Now, that's clear about if you study Judaism and you study Christianity and no other religion, you'll find that that's exactly true. They profess to be the organ, or we could say the conduit of a formal revelation. And a revelation, in fact, that is directed to the benefit of the whole human race. Now, that there has been direct, and I'm quoting his words, direct communication between man and his maker from time immemorial complements Peter's words. Now, this is me speaking. It complements the Apostle Peter's words in Acts 3.21 that God spoke, he says, univocally by the mouth of his holy prophets from time immemorial. That's the quotation, and that's the translation that Ilaria Ramelli gives it in her book, her excellent book on the Christian doctrine of apocatastasis, over 800 pages long. She gives it that translation, and I agree. Acts 3.21, God spoke univocally by the mouth of his holy prophets from time immemorial, and he spoke of the times, plural, of the restoration of all things. In the Greek, which I will no doubt butcher the pronouncement of, akri kronon apokatastasios panton, which is the restoration of all things, otherwise known as universal restoration or universal reconciliation in Colossians 1.20. In the same verse, Acts 3.21, Peter said that heaven must entertain Jesus in fact, this is 320, I believe. Peter said that heaven must entertain. The word dekomai means to retain, but it also means to entertain. Must entertain Jesus, the appointed Messiah. In other words, heaven hosts him as its glorious guest until, and there's an until to this, until these times that he's talking about, the times of the restoration of all things. That is, until the times when the restoration of all things is finally and fully consummated. Remember, Hebrews is all about completion. This, which is called the appointed times of refreshment also, in the same passage, it is called the appointed times, kairoi, of refreshment, relief, and rest, which comes from the Lord's presence when he sends the Messiah, says Peter, appointed in advance for you, 
that is Jesus. Now heaven retains him until the Father sends him again to this earth in Acts 3.20. Initiating the consummation of the times of refreshment, relief, and rest. The times of the restoration of all things, also known as the appointed times of refreshment from the presence of the Lord when he comes to bring salvation, as we know it from Hebrews 9.28, is evidently connected to what Hebrews 9.10 refers to as, quote, the time of the new order, mekri kairu diorthosios. That's again in Acts 9.10. You'll see all this in print. And what I'm doing today is almost a concentration of universal salvation as understood by the scriptures. Now, there is a difference to be noted between Acts 9.10 and Acts, or rather Hebrews 9.10 and Acts 3.20 and 21. The difference to be noted is that the appointed times of refreshment, relief, and rest, and the times of the restoration of all things are speaking of times that are to be consummated in what is still future to us. For they speak of an eschatological, universal time, which seems to correlate with God being finally all in all, as 1 Corinthians 15.28 calls it, when all of created reality enjoys the eschatological rest of God and celebrates the festive Sabbath. For there remains a Sabbath for the people of God, as Hebrews 4.9 will teach us. And also see Genesis 2.2 in Hebrews 4.4. The time of the deorthosis, which we can call it by anglicizing it a bit, the deorthosis, D-I-O-R-T-H-L-O-S-I-S, spoken of in Hebrews 9.10, is a new order that is said to come about not when Jesus comes, but when physical regulations that deal only with food, drink, and various washings are still in force. It doesn't come until those things are no longer in force. Those things are no longer in force since Christ came. That new order, then, has come. The Hebrews 9.10 new order has come. Whereas Romans 14, 17 to 18 says, For the kingdom of God does not consist of questions and preferences and restrictions regarding food and drink. On the contrary, it is righteousness, and that's the experience of God's gracious saving action, peace, that's harmony with God and fellowship with him and others, and joy, festive joy in the Holy Spirit. Romans 14, 18, anyone who serves the Messiah in this way is pleasing to God and approved by people. Now, serving the Messiah in this way is the same as serving the living God in Hebrews 9, 14. These are present types of service. These are ongoing descriptions of our service as a kingdom of priests. It is a service free from dead works 
and from the impositions of ritual regulations that deal only with food and drink and various baptisms of ceremonial washings. Read Hebrews 9.10 and you'll get the point. Now that these, the imposition of these dietary legalistic restrictions and washings related to ceremonial cleansing, that they are no longer in force now reveals that the time of the new order has already come. On the other hand, in distinction from that, and there has to be a differentiation of consciousness here created by the sword of the word. On the other hand, the times of the restoration of all things, Acts 3.21, awaits a future moment from our perspective. I think we can see a kind of dual inauguration of a universal restoration occurring in the two momentous moments that are really the first and the second appearance of Christ. That there is an appearing of Christ a second time in Hebrews 9.28 implies a first appearing. The first appearing of Christ is when he appeared once at the junction of the ages to put away sin by the offering of himself in 926 of Hebrews. This is contrasted with his appearance when he comes not to deal with sin, but to bring salvation in 928. The first appearance initiated the time of the new order of things. All of what I'm saying today is a kind of kernel or seed, which I hope to expand in the future into a pretty radical, but a pretty expanded doctrine. The first appearance of Christ initiated the time of a new order of things which involved the end of the imposition of dietary regulations and ceremonial washings, etc., as well as the offering of all kinds of animal sacrifices. In fact, it rendered redundant the offering of animal sacrifices and all of the rituals pertaining thereto. Again, please note this. This is not a rebuke of Judaism, but the proper and natural outcome and goal of Judaism. Another way to say it is that Christ is the completion of the law for everyone who believes in Romans 10.4. The second aspect of the twofold inauguration of the universal restoration will occur when the, the Messiah appears a second time. Not to deal with sin, he's already done that, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Now, there's a lot of people waiting for him that don't even know they're waiting for him, as we've noted from Romans 8, 19 to 23. In fact, all of creation in all of its times is anticipating him. Now, what I said before, I'm going to bring again. You see, this is kind of like a third gear now, if we make that metaphor again. 
we come to the debate between two renowned rabbis. One of them was tortured and killed for his faith, we could say. His name was Rabbi Akiba. The other was a man named Rabbi Eleazar. And these, this debate is apparently found in the Targum or the Targumic sources and the Talmud, I believe. But Harold Attridge makes a note of it in his Hebrews commentary. And this is what he says. Hebrews' handling of the Exodus generation may reflect exegetical traditions such as those found in rabbinic sources. Rabbi Akiba, that's A-Q-I-B-A, sometimes spelled A-K-I-B-A, using Numbers chapter 14 and Psalm 95, which is the Septuagint 94, maintained that the desert generation, listen very carefully here, Rabbi Akiba maintained that the desert generation would not have a share in the world to come. While Rabbi Eliezer ben Hyrcanus, relying on, for his side, Psalm 50 and verse 5, and if that's all he's relying upon, he's got a weak case, but... I looked it up, and it's pretty good. Psalm 50 and verse 5. Rabbi Eliezer maintained that they would. In other words, the part of the Exodus generation that was not allowed to enter God's rest or the promised land would nevertheless end the es enter the world to come. The same debate is also attributed to Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yehoshua, or Joshua, or Jesus, not our Lord, but another Rabbi, Yehoshua, in other rabbinical writings. That simply means writings of famous rabbis. Now, this debate presents us with a dilemma. There are also quite a few Christian exegetes who seem to imply that the prohibition spoken by Yahweh in Psalm 95.11, Septuagint 94.11, echoed in Hebrews 3.11, holds for entering into the final eschatological rest of God. And that it holds not only for the Exodus generation, but for all generations. This is not a light thing, and the contention of noted rabbinical and careful Christian exegetes ought not to be lightly brushed off. All kinds of questions emerge here. And these are questions we've dealt with in the past and can deal with again in Hebrews, thankfully. Does the prohibition to enter into God's rest mean the loss of salvation is one question. Is there a distinction between salvation and the eschatological rest is another question. Is the eschatological and evidently everlasting rest or Sabbath celebration, distinguished from entry into rest now, even now in the evil age? If so, another question arises. Is the prohibition to enter into God's rest an exclusion that only pertains to this life, 
or only to the interval of faithlessness and unbelief in this life. Is this rest a reward beyond mere salvation? And therefore a reward for the faithful that is withheld from the faithless? All of these questions emerge, at least the way I see it. I think it's important to let these questions marinate for a time. I don't like to present facile solutions to complex arguments. I don't think it does justice to the word of God. I think it's important to let these questions marinate for a time just to let the solemnity of this divine prohibition sink in. However, we handle this question in our attempt to rightly divide the word of truth, a warning is definitely being shouted out in this passage. And the one who shouts is God. What can be forfeited by faithless infidelity and gained through faith and fidelity to God's word is something worthy of urgency. If it weren't worth the urgency, then it can't be that worthy of our consideration. Now, here's where I stand in this argument. I find it impossible, given the overwhelming preponderance of scriptural documentation, that any person in the human race, including the recalcitrant and rebellious majority of the desert generation, would be excluded from a salvation that is variously named in the scriptures a universal reconciliation effected by the peace that was made by the blood of the cross of the Son of God's love in Colossians 1.20, referring back to 1.13, which is also called the restoration of all things, as we just saw in Acts 3.21, which is called the summing up of all things in Christ, both in heaven and in earth, all things in Christ, the divinely appointed Messiah in Ephesians 1.10, which is called the absolute and involves the absolute demolition of death in 1 Corinthians 15.26, which is called the universal perichoresis when God becomes all in all, all the universe in God, all of God in the universe, 1 Corinthians 15.28. So I find it very difficult to consider these descriptions and then conclude that anyone could be precluded from salvation, eschatological salvation. Salvation is the Lord's. It's his act. It's his thing. Psalm 3.8, Septuagint 3.9, Jonah 2.9, and we'll be referring to Jonah again down the road which is the Septuagint of Jonah 2.10. It is an act of God, salvation is. It's God's righteousness, which is what he has done, says Psalm 22.31. As John Henry Newman wrote, Judaism and Christianity both and together are the organ of a formal revelation which is directed to the benefit of the whole human race. I'm not done. 
I also found it not only impossible, but in fact very wrong to, in fact, even if you want to get moral about it, morally wrong to ignore the impact of the saving and justifying death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who experienced death for everyone. You might say he experienced the loss of salvation for everyone. He is the one who, when he died, all died. 2 Corinthians 5.14 compared with Hebrews 2.9. Put those two together. You'll have an explosion called an insight. He was made to be sin that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. In 2 Corinthians 5.21. Now two of my favorite quotes are about to emerge. One from a famous Lutheran Protestant theologian. Another from a Jesuit Catholic theologian. The first is from the Protestant Jürgen Moltmann. He wrote this in italic in one of the favorite books I've read of his called The Coming of God, Christian Eschatology. Quote, you've heard this if you've been in our phalanx for any long period of time. You've heard me quote this, and it deserves to be quoted over and over again. In fact, God's mercy endures forever was quoted 26 times in one psalm. So some things just bear repetition. Quote, the true Christian foundation for the hope of universal salvation is the theology of the cross and the realistic consequence of the theology of the cross can only be the restoration of all things. Now, given the realistic consequence of the cross, I like that, the realistic consequence of the cross or the theology of the cross, are we then to exclude the majority of the Exodus generation? Is it true that their offense against God was sustained and egregious? Yes. It was sustained over 40 years. It was so egregious as to ignite the wrath of God. They saw his works over the course of four decades and still rebelled with bitterness and apostasy. But if they are finally excluded from God's rest, then so must the generation who saw the works of God wrought in Jesus Christ and who still did not believe. On top of Moltmann's twofold principle, we could add Lonergan's Thesis 17 from his book, The Redemption. So here's the quote from a famous Catholic theologian. Now, neither of these theologians made much of being a Catholic or a Protestant. They kind of stepped outside the camp of their two Protestant or Catholic orientations. But he said, quote, this is Thesis 17, which I've also quoted oftentimes in this assembly. Quote, this is why the Son of God became man, suffered, died, and was raised again. 
because divine wisdom has ordained and divine goodness has willed not to do away with the evils of the human race through power, but to convert those same evils into a supreme good according to the just and mysterious law of the cross. So I say, if God, quote, converts the evils of the human race into a supreme good, and there is ample proof that he does, that he has, and that he will do so, then are we to suppose, on the contrary, that the evils of the Exodus generation will not be converted into a supreme good? Are they ruled out? Will those rebels be excluded from salvation while Saul of Tarsus, who is arguably guilty of still greater evils, would say, after an obvious conversion, for me, living is Christ, and to die is gain? I don't think so. In fact, because a universal salvation is provable in all the scriptures, we should probably conclude that the writer of Hebrews, who is profoundly familiar with those scriptures, would hold to a formal revelation other than the one of both Judaism and Christianity, which is directed to the benefit of the whole human race. Why would this PT, who was a master of both Judaism and Christianity, the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament truths, why would he reject the idea that both Judaism and Christianity brought forth a formal revelation to the benefit of all mankind. He wouldn't, and he didn't. I don't think it's in any way called for to say that both the human author and the Holy Spirit are threatening the readers of Hebrews, therefore, with the potential forfeiture of salvation. However, we must pay attention and see that there is a stern and serious warning running throughout this homily, which is true to the method put forth by Paul in Colossians 1.28, whom, when speaking of Christ our hope, in verse 27, said, whom we proclaim, teaching everyone and warning everybody so that we may finally present everyone complete in him. Complete, teleon, T-E-L-E-I-O-N, in him. A key word in Hebrews which is about completion. Remember, Hebrews is about completion. And even more, it's all about Jesus. There's something about being presented complete in Christ that is of extreme importance, importance to the New Testament and perhaps especially in Hebrews, but really all throughout the New Testament. But there's still more in this argument. In other canonical iterations of Israel's history, in other words, in other places in the Old Testament and the New Testament, there is a narrative, a repetition of the narrative of Israel's history. And I call them uh, canonical iterations of Israel's history. 
In other canonical iterations of Israel's history, other than Psalm 95, God's mercy is shown to triumph over Israel's failures. Psalm 78, for example, Psalm 105 and 106, especially 106. Psalm 136, Nehemiah chapter 9. And that's tricky because you can't find Nehemiah in a list of Septuagint books because it's found in 2nd Esdras, E-S-D-R-A-S, 2nd Esdras, chapters 11 through 23. Nehemiah 9, though. Daniel 9, also. All of these are examples of these iterations, rehearsals, or recitations of Israel's dramatic history. In these recitations of Israel's history, we may note that the inspired authors show that God took Israel out of Egypt, through the desert, and into the promised land. Though they mention Israel's recalcitrance and rebellion, they nevertheless showcase the radical continuity of God's mercy and faithfulness. A couple of examples will suffice. This one hit me like a train, first of all. It's Nehemiah, which is 2 Esdras, E-S-D-R-A-S, if you're looking in the Septuagint. 2 Esdras, chapters 11 to 23 in the Septuagint, is Nehemiah in our Bibles, our English Bibles. But in Nehemiah 9, 16 and 17, notice this verse. Again, this one hit me like a locomotive. And they and our ancestors behaved arrogantly, stiffened their neck, which is a synonym for hardened their hearts, and didn't listen to your commandments. Nehemiah is praying. He's identifying with the sinfulness of Israel and a plea for mercy. And this is on the eve of Israel's restoration in 516 B.C., but he says again, they and our ancestors behaved arrogantly, stiffened their neck, and didn't listen to your commandments. And they refused to obey and were not mindful of your wonders that you wrought for them. And they stiffened their neck, again he says it, a synonym again here for hardening of the heart, and intended to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God who forgives sins, are gracious, and here it is, and you did not forsake them. So in Nehemiah 9, 18 to 28 especially, Nehemiah rehearses the history of God's unrelenting mercy to Israel down to the very moment of his prayer, which was at the end of the 70-year exile prophesied by Jeremiah. So it's around 516 B.C., give a few years or take a few years. Throughout his narrative of Israel's history, God never abandoned Israel, no matter what their disobedience, apostasy, or idolatry. 
more notable for our study, Nehemiah recites the history in such a way that there is no gap between their desert meandering and their conquest of kingdoms. Furthermore, the psalmist detects a solidarity, a unity of the people of Israel <clears throat> despite the arrogance and unbelief of many. In other words, that part that was that part of the generation that was excluded from the land <clears throat> is viewed still to be in solidarity with all of Israel because all of Israel is in solidarity with Christ, its appointed Messiah, in whom all things and all beings and all Israel will be summed up. As it says in Romans 3.3, 3, so what if some were unfaithful? Does, this, does their unbelief make the faithfulness of God ineffective? The answer to this rhetorical question, of course, is an emphatic no. We could go on with this, and I'm going to take it up <clears throat> a little bit next time and leave just a little bit more here to go over next time so that we can pick up this strand and not forget it. But there is one more example in another canonical iteration of Israel's history. It comes from Psalm 78, which is the Septuagint 77 and verse 38. Though the psalm composer recites occasion after occasion of that generation stirring up God's wrath, he nevertheless wrote in Psalm 78:38, Septuagint 77:38, quote, "But he is compassionate and will atone for their sins." It looked forward here to the crucifixion and death, and atoning death of Jesus Christ. But he is compassionate and will atone for their sins and will not destroy them. Indeed, he will frequently turn away his wrath and will not ignite his full wrath. I'm going to leave it there right now because there's much more I even had prepared to give you today, but I think that's enough for now to reveal that if we were in this debate between Akiba and Eliezer, I think I'd be in Eliezer's side of the room. So thank we, we thank you, Father, today that your word, which is alive and operational, is alive and operational even now today, spoken afresh by the Spirit. May we not harden our hearts to the things we're looking at today, but may this word once again be the conduit of sanctifying and saving, rectifying and reconciling grace. May it again, Father, enrich the poor in spirit, lift the oppressed and depressed souls, and challenge us to press on toward the mark of the prize of the ever upward and always onward call of God in Christ Jesus. And Father, we thank you today for the privilege of our giving to this Treasures of Ch for Children effort 
and I thank you for how many have responded with great generosity and love. We pray that that will continue and that it will help the joy of many in this area. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.